from Freie Universität Berlin. I'm Jonas Benz, and this is the Affect and Colonialism podcast. Although European societies promise religious freedom, non-Christians remain subject to considerable discrimination. In this context, it is mostly taken for granted that there is a basic conflict between the modern secular state and the passions of religion. But what about the passions of the secular? Today, we talk with sociologist Nur Yasmin Ural about the colonial effects of secular Europe. Yasmin, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jonas. It's great to be here. Yasmin, you've worked um, for many years at um, different universities in Turkey, in France and in Germany. And I'd love you for us to describe what are actually the problems that non-Christians face in Europe when they want to practice their faith. I think there are a lot of uh, restrictions on people of different faiths and For instance, uh, the circumcision debate we had in 2012, you know, in Cologne, they, uh, they tried to ban it for a while. And then the, the famous debate on, on face veiling, but also like generally veiling, where can you exist, where can you work? And the simple things like also being buried, right? The rights for a burial in France and in Germany, for Muslims especially, is not that easy. Also, like the debate around the adherence of Turkey to the EU back in 2005 has been also discussed in terms of like, you know, are we going to accept a Muslim country within Europe or not? So these are the controversies that I can think of when I think of the, the European context as a secular one on the one hand and the, the non-secular or let's say non-Christian minorities face that are usually deemed as non-secular. I think that points to a question that is a little difficult to understand because it is one of such a core principles of, you know, European identity and modernity to transform into a secular society, a state and a society that is not based on Christianity, but on secular values. But the way you describe it, it also seems that particularly non-Christians, are facing these problems. So how Christian, then, do you think is secular Europe? That's a big question, and it has been discussed in the last couple of decades very intensely because the, the idea that you're posing that is based on the narrative of secularity was a modern project, right? The entire idea was that the more we advance in time, the more modern they become, the more we will be leaving religion behind us. And this general understanding of religion as being backwards, not progressive, and not belonging to modernity in a certain way has been challenged a lot, especially uh, with the rise of new religious movements starting from the 80s and 90s or even 70s. And there we started to understand, on the one hand, that religion was not going to disappear, but on the other hand, that all the assumptions about religion, uh, secularity, sorry, being a neutral and completely a-religious, in a way, or the, the opposite of religion, was not completely 
representing the reality of a lot of people living in secular countries that leads to a certain ideological project more than representing reality. I'm talking about the, the secularization theory. I believe that these studies that were present in philosophy of religion, anthropology, or even religious studies showed us how the, the very assumptions of the European modernity was actually based on its Christian roots, even if it wasn't made explicit. I think one is reminded when you talk about these issues about this very classical study by Max Weber on the relationship of Protestantism and capitalism. And what he basically says is that capitalism comes out of Protestantism, Protestant ideology, and the modern capitalist Europe has in a way secularized Christian or Protestant values. So would that be then the idea that the secular in Europe is basically Christianity in disguise? I think there are people who would agree what you just said, but I think the, uh, the, the question is more complicated than that. There are scholars who argue that it's an exact continuity of Christianity or Protestant Western Christianity. And there are others who believe that there had been certain modifications that cannot be traced back to, to Christianity as we know it. So I think the, the debate is still open and my take on it would be to, to see it locally. Because I think we have this idea of like secular Europe, as you were saying, in quotation marks, and see where it is secular. Because the secularity that we are tackling with is a very fragmented thing in a certain way. And at certain points, it becomes very much similar to, to Christianity. And at other times and, and points, you can see a lot of divergences. But I think it became almost common sense in a certain way to talk about Christianity when we're talking about secularity, secularism, and secularizations, Christianity, and also colonialism. I'd like to pick up on that because the same, let's say, problem, the same unclear relationship also appears in the study of colonialism, right? So you have the role of Christianity as a driving force of the colonial project, the Christian mission, bringing Christianity all over the world. But again, colonialism is also about transforming the global economy into a more secular, rational way of organizing persons and things globally. So isn't also there this ambiguity of how Christian is colonialism and how secular and, and what is the relationship between these two strands that um, are present in colonialism? That's a different question. I should be asking you this because I think it's very important to look back at the, the way Christianity played a role in converting the First Nations, for instance. And we still see its effects. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, the entire graves that have been found in, in Canada were really remarkable because these schools, these Catholic schools that were made to culturally, genocidally oppressing the, the indigenous populations were still operational. They were there until the 90s. So I think the, uh, we cannot think of Christianity 
without thinking of the nation state. So on the one hand, they, they go together. So on the one hand, you have the Christian uh, missionaries, you have the Christianization of almost the entire world in a certain way, or at least the attempts, particularly in Americas, right? Which was extremely successful. And on the other hand, you have the, the French Revolution that comes with the nation state and this obsession with uh, secularity and secularism that was imported to most of the places, right? We have in Mexico, La Isidad. Even if Turkey was not colonized, they have taken it from the, the French laicity and made it to a laiclic principle. And there has been these two forces, and I wouldn't see them as in contradiction. I think they had different constellations at different times, and they were sometimes competing with, with each other, but sometimes feeding each other and helping each other to realize the, the project of the nation state, but uh, in a very capitalistic way, I would say. And it is curious that although the secular mode of organizing society and the religious mode, they have so much in common and they have these common historical roots, there is also a lot of cultural work being done to differentiate the two. And I think there is also politics of affect at play. So always when we talk about religious conflict, we have on the one hand the emotional religious believer And on the other hand, the unemotional, the rational, secular state. So why is it that emotion is always attributed to religion rather than to the secular? And what does this have to do also with the colonial politics of affect, in which also emotion is always put outside of Europe and the rational way of doing things with Europe? That's a great question, but a very, very complex one. And I like the way you, you put how um, the secular and religious politics are intertwined. And I think we have to go back to the roots of the, the concept of religion and try to understand that they are binary categories, right? They always come together and uh, they're always also interdependent. And there is a power relationship between that, right? It has been at least put forward this, uh, this way that the secular, secular forces, that's the argument of Talal Asad, decided where the boundaries of the religious was. And not only that, but what also decided what religion is. It's a category that became very uh, prominent within the world religious paradigm at the end of 19th century when you had this common idea of the Europeans studying but also classifying other nations, right, as the, the coloniality or colonial world order was advancing on the one hand, you had to systematically study them. And I think this was part of the entire idea that secular is a neutral and value-free and thus an emotion-free standpoint that comes from nowhere. Right? That was the, the common understanding. On the other hand, the dominant understanding of religion that was mostly based on the Protestant idea of inner belief, feelings of transcendence were very much based on emotions of a certain person that put aside partially the praxis 
saying that ritual is not as important as the belief that one has. And this, I think, is one of the most important points that we, we should be paying attention to when we are thinking about religion. What gets called religion? In which context? And I think the, the, the second part of your question was that, why do we understand religion as being emotional? And I think that wasn't only the faith of religion itself, but it was also the faith of women or colonial subjects. And it's no coincidence that they are deemed more religious than the, the European person that is considered to have overcome already this religious fanaticism, in quotation marks, and became an adult in a certain way, right? I mean, this analogy of, of child and, and the adult, the analogy of slave and a master. And I think it was a latecomer, I guess, the secular religious dichotomy to the critique of colonialism, of Orientalism. But now I think more and more people are interested in, in the power dynamics of the religious and secular especially with the entire conflicts that emerges in the entire world with the so-called return of the religions, the scholars, but also the general public are paying more and more attention and thinking more and more about what do we mean by religion when we say religion and what is deemed religion? Because I think it's also important in the colonial context, what was considered to be religious before, what was categorized as religion was also not equally distributed. Right? I mean, the, the African religions, the local religions, were usually defined as custom, tradition, and not religion per se. So I think we should be thinking more about this and, and see the continuities or at least the, the, the impacts of this history on the way we think and tackle the conflicts that we are facing today. So if I understand you correctly, that, that also means that the fact that we talk about religious feeling, but not about secular feeling, is a way of exerting power in the colonial world that has a lot to do with the effective politics of colonialism more generally, right? So if we think of Edward Said's famous book, Orientalism, from the late 70s, There he writes about all these mechanisms through which colonial fantasies about the other are constructed. And these dichotomies that you mentioned, they play a major role. So the Orient is feminized and Europe is masculinized. Um, the Orient is emotional. Europe is rational. The Orient is childish. Um, Europe is grown up, right? And the distribution of affect plays a major role in this. So affect is with women, with children, with slaves, with the other, with the outside of Europe. Do you then think that talking about secular affect is a kind of critique of colonialism in a way? You're asking very difficult questions, but they're very interesting. I would be hesitant to say that secular affect, the concept itself, is a direct critique of colonialism, but I think secularity has something to do with colonial world order, capitalism, 
and the nation states. So colonialism is certainly part of it, but I wouldn't say that's the only critique that secular affects try to create or pose in a certain way. But I totally agree with the continuities that you were pointing to. I think the secular and the religious dichotomy has a lot of analogies with the colonial differences, but at the, at the same time, it has also analogies with the gender dichotomy. But what I try to do, at least in my work, is to make it clear that secular is not an empty denominator from which we can look and define the religious. It is a historical process. It is still on, and it is in most of the places that the Europeans or North Americans live, but it goes beyond that. And that is a force that must be taken into account when we are talking about the, the questions of religion and the conflicts of minorities in different contexts. So yes and no. So it has something to do with uh, colonialism, but it's not only colonialism that I think secular studies or critical secular studies are trying to deconstruct. So it seems what you're saying is that we have to look at secularism and the secular as something in its own right. So it's not just what many would think, that the secular is just that, what remains when you take religion out of the picture. And that would also mean that if you research religious conflict, you always look for the role of religion because it's the only substantive thing you can think about, but you don't look at the role of the secular so much because you don't have much conception of what the secular is beside the absence of religion. So would you think then that thinking about the secular in its own right and also the effect of the secular gives us something to better understand religious conflicts? You point to the, the myth of the subtraction theory, right, of Charles Taylor. And he's criticizing that. He's saying that usually we think that secular is, is what remains when you take religion out of the picture. But I think, and some scholars also ha have been pointing to, to that recently, that we cannot think one or the two without the other. So we should be always looking at them in an intertwined way because they make each other. So when you think of, oh, can we understand religious conflicts? I'm thinking, are they really religious conflicts? Who calls them religious conflicts? And how do they become religious conflicts in what context, right? I would then be very attentive to call something a religious conflict when other secular forces are involved. And usually they are, because if you call something religious, then you assume that there is a point of which you call it secular that you know, attributes the other the religiosity that one deems itself to be free of. I think the, the concept of secular affect is a provocative concept to make it apparent, okay, you have, usually we have, let's say, less of a problem thinking of religion and religious affects and religious emotions. On the one hand, that is so natural, but that's to, to provoke and say, look, 
why shouldn't be the case that we talk about uh, secular affects and secular affects are completely independent from its environment, it might be as religious as the religious affect in a certain way and how do we uh, separate them from each other. I think that the entire idea of secular affects is to see this interdependency and the entire history of this binary construction of religion and secular and, and I think this critique is meant to make it apparent that we should always take into consideration both sides and how these politics are at stake. So you're arguing basically that we even have to go one step further than that. So not only to see that the secular is a thing in itself, not only religion, that it also has an effective core, an effective dimension and driving force, same as religion, and therefore look also at the secular. But you would say that the way the categories of religious and secular are distributed in a field of conflict in the first place is determinant of how these conflicts can be seen, how solutions can be imagined for the problems that are evoked. You say basically that there is a kind of effective politics of categorizing religious and secular that we have to look at. And that means to get rid of very many assumptions that we might have when we look at a debate like the veil or circumcision and really to empty our analytic minds of all these pre-assumptions and to look at these politics of labeling and distributing. Well, exactly. And thank you for articulating actually my thoughts better than I, uh, I do. So that's exactly what I'm trying to say, that to see the, the effective dynamics of calling something secular or religious and try to understand how, for instance, we have an ease to say, oh, Christmas, it's just a cultural thing, or a cross in, in a classroom, it's just part of the culture, right? But on the other hand, if you see a person with a kippah, that will be just, oh, a very religious person, or a headscarf, that would, a person who is uh, fasting uh, during the Ramadan, or a person who is uh, honoring their ancestors, would be just automatically considered to be uh, a religious person. So what makes us think that these, these things exist in the, in the realm of the categorization of culture on the one hand or religion on the other hand? Yasmin, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Jonas. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs>